I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to another Doomsday Watch War Bulletin. We want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in. Listeners like you are the bedrock of our work. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, help us shape future episodes, and get exclusive merchandise, all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. Hello and welcome back to Doomsday Watch. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Laura Considine of the School of Politics and International Studies at the University of Leeds. Laura is an expert on global nuclear politics, nuclear disarmament and the history of arms control. Laura, welcome. Thank you. Laura, it is perhaps unfortunate that your area of expertise has uh, shot back up the agenda in recent weeks, particularly after apparent sabre-rattling by Russia, indicating that they were putting their um, nuclear forces on a state of higher readiness. So that's the context in which we're speaking. But I wanted to start with the kind of the big picture. So perhaps you could start by just uh, describing to listeners uh, which are the current nuclear armed states and to what extent are they under overarching international agreements that govern the ways in which they uh, use and manage those weapons? Sure. So at the moment, there are nine nuclear armed states in the world, the US, Russia, the UK, France, China, um, and then also North Korea, India, Pakistan, and Israel. Israel maintains a, a position of opacity on its nuclear weapons, whether where it doesn't confirm nor deny that it has them. Um, but we do take Israel as a nuclear armed state. Yeah. So since these weapons have come into existence, there has developed a, a kind of a web of institutions of, of governance and, and practices that have come to form what is often called a, a global nuclear order you know, the kind of practices and, and relationships, military relationships of, of nuclear deterrence. But there's also a whole set of, of in international treaties and, and governance structures. What's often called, as a bit of a cliche, the, the cornerstone yeah. of nuclear governance is, is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, or MPT, which is a really large uh, treaty. There's 190 um, member states the purpose of this treaty, um, which was negotiated in, in the late 60s and entered into force in 1970, um, was to stem the movement for more countries gaining nuclear weapons. So that's the kind of core function of that treaty. And, and under that treaty, it allows the five states that had nuclear weapons at the time, the UK, Russia, the US, China and France, to have the status of nuclear weapon states under the treaty. Yeah. Um, and then every other country joining the treaty joins as a non-nuclear weapon state. And what this means is that the non-nuclear weapon states promise not to get nuclear weapons. And in return, they are allowed to access peaceful nuclear technology. And the nuclear weapon states parties to that treaty have committed to reducing um, their nuclear weapons over time. Yeah. The issue with that treaty is also that 
as I've said, um, there are nine nuclear weapon states, but there's only five in the treaty. So those um, states that became nuclear weapon states after the treaty are outside of that, which is a real problem in terms of the universality of that treaty. That seems to be a sort of key issue that you effectively have a sort of three-tier system. You have, if you like, the official nuclear weapon states, and then you've got the four that sit on the outside. And of course, many people are familiar with North Korea because it feels like much more of a rogue state. But to graduate from being a country without nuclear weapons to being what might be that sort of second tier is, of course, something that that at different times other countries have sought to do. And, And is it right to say that North Korea was the most recent country to develop nuclear weapons? Yes, absolutely. And North Korea was actually a party to the the non-proliferation treaty and developed its weapons secretly while while a party left the treaty then and subsequently tested a weapon. Um, And so the the legitimacy of, of, of North Korea's nuclear arsenal is under question in that way. And I think I'm going to complicate it even a little bit further because you could say that there are another category of states and that's the states that are in an alliance with a nuclear weapon state. Right. You know, you have the the NATO states, um, you have Japan, South Korea, and all of these states are under what might here called the, the US nuclear umbrella or extended deterrence in which the NATO member states and for the, for the uh, US allied states, if they are to be attacked, a the US has kind of guaranteed that it will use its nuclear weapons to protect those states as well. But to return to your earlier point you made as well, when you think about why the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was negotiated was that there were fears that you would have, you know, 30, uh, 50, 60 nuclear armed states. And and many of the states that actually, you know, had nuclear weapons or were, you know, developing nascent nuclear um, weapons programs gave up those programs. You know, we don't actually have that many states who have these weapons. And that is where the extended deterrence comes in and the credibility of, of US extended deterrence. Would states who are in a relationship where they feel you know, protected by a US nuclear security be tempted to get their own weapons if, if they felt that, that US nuclear weapons would not protect them? Yeah. Now, of course, one country that had nuclear weapons and gave them up is Ukraine. As uh, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, at the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union broke up and the constituent countries, of which one was Ukraine, some of them ended up having on their territory uh, what were effectively Soviet nuclear weapons. Um, Ukraine gave those weapons up under certain security guarantees, which arguably those guarantees have not really delivered for them. So can you talk the listener through what that process was and whether or not Ukraine had a right to feel that it was under a sort of nuclear umbrella as a result of having given up its uh, nuclear weapons? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that, you know, while there were Soviet weapons and quite a lot, I think it was a third, I think, of the, the Soviet nuclear arsenal was was on Ukrainian territory, they were not, you know, weapons of the Ukrainian state. And and there is one thing to have the weapons and there is another thing to have the command and control and the ability to actually use those weapons. So Uh, the Ukrainians did not, as it were, have their own red button? No, no. So Ukraine, uh, the other two states were were Belarus and and Kazakhstan in 1994, joined the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty as a non-nuclear weapon state. 
and transferred its warheads to Russia for elimination. It received financial compensation as well. And the Budapest Memorandum was signed by Russia, by the US and and by the UK that provided um, security assurances to Ukraine. Yeah, so Russia has broken its obligations under under that memorandum for sure. But I think it is much more complicated than, oh, well, if Ukraine, you know, made a mistake in giving up these weapons. Part of that move was, you know, we are going to become our own actor in the international community. You know, we're going to join the MPT and, and get the benefits of abiding by the kind of non-proliferation norms. Yeah. So in that sense, it's easy to understand the incentive for Ukraine at that time. Mm. But I I guess in another way, if you're a country that worked on the basis that you're under a nuclear umbrella of the kind that you described earlier, do the events of the recent past change that calculation at all? I mean, clearly, we're we're not in a nuclear war. So that's not what we're talking about. But does the experience that Ukraine has gone through in in the last month or so change that equation for other countries, do you think? Yeah, I think it must do. And, you know, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, you know, in a a large way, this is what's been given as a a reason for Russian invasion and, and aggression is NATO expansion. It would be a different kind of situation if if Russia was to do this to to a member of of NATO that's you know under um, this nuclear alliance and, and guaranteed under Article Five for a collective response to to any any aggression by an outside party to a member of of NATO, and so certainly countries must be thinking about you know the importance of maintaining that us nuclear security guarantee for those who are who are under that nuclear umbrella it's it's it's, it's a really difficult situation to think through as well you know because and you can immediately think oh well you know Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons it's you know if it had its own nuclear weapons you know it would be protected and you know that on the face of it you can you can that seems like a plausible plausible argument um if you extend that logic further you know does that mean that we think that the world would be safer if every country had nuclear weapons and i think if we look at the broader context there has been a lot of discussion over the years and and thinking about you know nuclear weapons as if states had them that makes state leaders act in a a more kind of um prudent way um, yeah. But what we're seeing here is nuclear weapons being used as a means of enabling aggression. Yeah. You know, so so I think taking a broader look at this, I think we'd actually be living in a in a much more dangerous world, not a safer one. One thing I'd like to talk a bit more about is Russia and its own approach. Russia, as you've already described, is a signatory of this NPT treaty and, you know, is one of the kind of official nuclear weapon states, if, if, if that's a uh, acceptable terminology. But it is also uh, widely said that the Russians' view on the use of tactical nuclear weapons, by which we mean fairly small but still devastating, is rather different to that of America. Is that correct? And, and can you try to explain that a little bit for listeners who might be trying to get their heads around it. Before I get into that, I think it is important, I, you know, I, I feel when we talk about tactical nuclear weapons in, in the public and, and the idea of kind of usable or, or smaller nuclear weapons, we're still talking about incredibly destructive weapons. Yeah. Um, a lot of the tactical nuclear weapons 
are larger than the the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima um, and that killed up to 140,000 people. Yeah. So, you know, any use of a nuclear weapon is going to have huge um, political as well as, as well as military consequences. And I think that's always important to keep at the forefront of our mind when thinking about tactical nuclear weapons uses as, as if it's somehow lesser in terms of, of the danger or the destruction or, or what could happen as a result. Yeah. So one of the things that makes studying nuclear weapons challenging is that for security purposes, you know, there's a lot that is kept secret um, and different nuclear armed states are more and less transparent in how they use these weapons, what their command and control structure is, how many of the weapons they have. A level of uncertainty is understood to be important in order to maintain um, the credibility of deterrence. So there has yeah. actually been a lot of debate, particularly in the US and, and particularly um, during the, the Trump administration, about what the declared policy of Russia is in terms of you know when and how it would use this weapon. Um, and there was a lot of discussion that Russia would be willing to use so-called tactical nuclear weapons in a way as a kind of a preemptive striker in you know before there was a, a you know an existential threat. Yeah. This was kind of termed as a escalate to de-escalate strategy. And Russia does have far more of these smaller tactical size nuclear weapons than, for example, the US. Um, you know, again, this is all estimates, but there are, you know, potentially up to 2000 non-strategic weapons in, in the Russian arsenal. Um, and just sorry, out of interest, what what would the comparable number for the Americans be? Um, I know that the US has um, about 100 tactical non-strategic weapons based in, in Europe. Right. And it has a much lower level of of, of tactical nukes, um, and these are not covered by any of the um, arms control treaties. But all this debate about in what circumstances Russia might use these weapons, um, you know, doesn't actually fit with what Russia's declared policy on nuclear use. So Russia has, you know, declared four circumstances in which it will use its nuclear weapons. So they are kind of, you know, in retaliation for nuclear use. If there are ballistic missiles launched at, at, at Russia or against kind of critical government or military sites, or if there is aggression against Russia, that's not nuclear, but it challenges the very existence of, of the state. Some sort of existential threat. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, Russia's official policy is not to, to make those sorts of, of kind of preemptive tactical uses of, of nuclear weapons that, you know, are the focus of, of a lot of um, fear at the moment. You know, to what extent that could be subverted or undermined is kind of the question is, is where the concern comes from. It has been, you know, we think increasing the, the number of non-strategic nuclear weapons it has. So, so those sort of kind of the practical materialities yeah. of, of the weapons themselves slightly make you concerned about how that fits with the Russia's actual declared policy that it would not use these weapons, you know, except for in, in these extreme conditions. One thing I'm interested to explore, though, is is in a way the sort of case study of what having nuclear weapons does for Russia. I suppose what I'm getting at is that, you know, Russia has demonstrated by its invasion of Ukraine that its nuclear weapons prevent the kind of action that someone might take against, you know, Iraq when it invades Kuwait or Syria when it uses chemical weapons on its own people. Is that a sort of fair analysis that this effectively is a kind of case study in what having nuclear weapons does for you as a, as a protection? 
Yes, um, I think, you know, you can't really dispute that, that, you know, actors are having to, you know, be really careful in their response and are, you know, deterred, to use the phrase, from taking certain actions that they might otherwise do because Russia has nuclear weapons. I think that, you know, this this really shows how nuclear weapons can clearly be used as a as a cover and as a protector, you know, for you to engage in, you know, the sort of behavior that Russia is doing and pretty much guarantee that, you know, you will restrain or certainly, you know, make other actors second guess themselves from taking action that they might otherwise do to stop you. And then sort of taking that idea a bit further, is it possible to argue that in certain circumstances it's actually helpful that you have to peer nations with nuclear weapons. So we think about the Cold War. Well, of course, the Cold War did not escalate into a hot war, partly because of the value of deterrence. And maybe with India and Pakistan, you know, they could have ended up in a massive conventional war in which perhaps millions of of combatants would have been involved. But again, because they're both nuclear armed states, has that actually uh, sort of delivered, dare I say it, a positive outcome in that? in that context. We have this this idea of the nuclear peace, yeah. right? That since since World War II, this is the reason why we don't have great power war. Um, and I think that it's very hard. It's very hard to make those arguments because, you know, deterrence is all about what didn't happen, right? Um, and it's yeah. really hard to study what didn't happen. You can try doing like counterfactuals. But, you know, ultimately, you just have two opposing set of arguments, which is, oh, this would have happened if you didn't have nuclear weapons. And, and then those who argue against the idea of the nuclear peace say, no, 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 this, this wouldn't have happened anyway. Yeah. But I think certainly in terms of India and Pakistan, it's, it's a really interesting case uh, in terms of what nuclear weapons stop from happening and, and what nuclear weapons enable um, happening. So... Mm. There is a theory called the the stability-instability paradox in which it is argued that nuclear weapons actually enable conflict at lower levels. So they enable conventional conflict at lower levels because actors know that it won't um, go to a a much higher level because of the threat of, of nuclear deterrence. Um, So there's a, there's, you know, that in a way there's an inverse relationship between how stable deterrence is and how likely conventional conflict is to break out. But it's it's really hard, I think, to to argue this um, definitively because you're always trying to prove a negative. Yeah. And I suppose you everybody brings certain prior positions to the debate. And so it ends up just being a, a recirculation of sort of someone's existing positions. Exactly. Yeah. If we look at prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the big sort of nuclear weapons debate was the Iranian nuclear program. And of course, rather as you talked of in the case of North Korea, the Iranians haven't publicly acknowledged that they were developing nuclear weapons, but that appears to to have been their aim. So I suppose as dispassionately as it's possible to, could you start explaining what it is logical to assume that the Iranians were doing up until the so-called Iran nuclear deal and what they might be doing now. So Iran is a member of of the MPT and as such it has, you know, under international law agreed to not develop nuclear weapons. 
Um, Iran is under the NPT allowed, as every state is, um, to develop nuclear technology for um, civilian use, so energy, scientific purposes. Under the, the NPT, Iran needs to declare its nuclear materials, its nuclear facilities and, and undergo safeguards. Uh, and Iran wasn't doing that. Um, it was discovered that it, you know, it had secret uh, undeclared um enrichment facilities that were enabling it to create and enrich uranium up to up to higher levels. You know, it's it's very complicated. Iran has always, you know, said that it doesn't it doesn't want a weapon, but it is certainly engaging in activities that that would undermine that claim. Just to sort of to be absolutely clear, is there any reason other than weapons use that you could find a use for this highly enriched uranium? No, not really. No. What Iran is doing now you know, since since the US pulled out of the deal is in it's been very publicly declaring that it's enriching uranium past what it previously agreed. And yeah. at that point you can kind of maybe think about that being used as a bargaining chip, you know, to bring right. to bring the US back. But no, I mean prior to the start of the the talks for the what was um, known as the Iran deal, Iran was quite clearly breaking its obligations and breaking international law under the MPT. And so since then, the parties have been back in Vienna and there are positive signals coming out of Vienna. And certainly before the, because Russia is involved in these talks, before the Ukrainian um, invasion, um, it was thought that they were very close to a deal. Um, you know, it is possible that that could be in place um, before the next meeting of the um, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Parties, which is in August. Um, yeah. But at the moment, it's quite uncertain and, and, and fragile. I'm not sure. And I think what happens with this is, is really important, I think, in terms of what the future looks like for, for non-proliferation. Yeah. And it, it's an interesting case study because I think there's, uh, there's there seems to be quite a consensus that the deal was working fine. Mm -hmm. You know, Trump pulled America out basically because of, of a sort of irrational obsession with something that Obama had done. But one one aspect of this, which takes me back to something you said earlier, is that what the deal wasn't doing necessarily was limiting Iran's activities in sort of conventional uh, non-nuclear space. So Iran was still actively supporting militia groups across the Middle East. It was still, uh, depending on your definition, supporting terrorist groups in, in certain parts, uh, certain parts of the world. So, but is that in a way to fail to understand that nuclear non-proliferation doesn't necessarily contribute to those kind of wider uh, agenda? I don't think that we should separate out the nuclear aspect of, of conflict or politics out from, from other areas, because I think that we, we need to understand this in its context. But I, I do think that in, in the case of the Iran deal, all of this other activity is made a lot worse, you know, having this extra uncertainty about Iran's nuclear status, you know, a nuclear armed Iran doing this is much more of a problem and, and much more of a problem for regional proliferation. So yes, I mean, the, the deal was never about that. You know, it was it was focused in, I think, a, a kind of a very quite pragmatic attempt to really focus on the nuclear aspect of the problem and, and get some certainty around this. Right. So, Laura, we, we've covered an enormous landscape, including the current conflict. Um, what do you see as being the key issues on the questions of sort of nuclear policy in the, in the next five to 10 years? And I suppose this is with the hope that you know, Russia and Ukraine's war does not go nuclear, in which case I guess all bets are off. Yeah, I mean, if, if that happens, I 
my powers of you know prediction i i just don't know what would happen then we're at a very difficult or a very i think important point and i think this was the case before you know even the the russian invasion happened so we had you know the end of the bipolar age of two nuclear superpowers and then we 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 kind of have been moving into an age of you know multiple nuclear armed states that are engaged in complex relations of deterrence a lot of the mechanisms that were set up to to manage nuclear weapons there was a lot of you know bilateral arms control agreements between the US and and the Soviet Union now Russia um and these things just don't really look relevant anymore and a lot of them have collapsed recently and so the big question is what what happens in their place do we have unrestrained competition and and further arms racing that is complicated by the fact that it's not just two states anymore it's multiple states and the US is still seeing China as its main strategic competitor even now so you know do we do we end up in this sort of dynamic which i think is is really scary and really uncertain or you know is there a way that this can can be used to productively think about you know what a future should look like and to engage in new types of of management and arms control um it's unsure to me where we go from here that is a really productive and 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 deescalatory way to think about the role of nuclear weapons in in international politics um but i think it is it is possible and really for me i think that at least people are talking about this now at least the public is aware you know that that these weapons exist you know that they're always you know they haven't gone away and come back yeah when we have seen movement from states in during the cold war you know a lot of this has been because of of public you know engagement and public protest many of the the key you know treaties and agreements were enabled and and supported through public engagement on this issue and so you know that's where i think that there you know is potential and i i i hope that people do continue to talk about this and understand that this could open the door to to increase nuclear build up and arms racing and i i don't think that's a good a good thing well that seems like something that everyone could agree on and and a good point to end this discussion. Uh Laura, thank you so much for sharing your uh, very broad uh, knowledge and expertise on this subject and thank you for joining us in Doomsday Watch. Oh, thank you for having me. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us 5 stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as 3 pounds per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.